0: Uh, Hi, David Klinkenberg. It's great to have you with us tonight. Uh, You've met Noel before the show. Uh, How are you doing today, David?
1: I'm doing great, and I just want to say thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting.
0: We've been talking for a very, very long time. You reached out to me out of the blue, and you're like, I have a theory. I have a code, in fact. Uh, And we'll get into the code a little bit later on about what you found. But we started talking, and we've been talking for months, literally, and David has a really unique perspective. Now, as I mentioned earlier on, you're a, uh, a violinist by trade. This is the thing you do. You traveled around the world. Uh, because you're so good at being a violinist. And you've done and you've done that since you were what, four years old?
1: Yeah, I started with the Chicago Youth Symphony program.
0: Wow. wow. I can't imagine being four years old and picking up a violin and doing anything other than like trying to break it. I can't imagine that. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I don't know what got into you to do that. What made you start? My sister played the piano, and
1: my mom looked at me when I was four years old and said, "Do you want to play something?" And I said, "Okay." I didn't even know what she was talking. I had no idea the commitment I had just signed myself up for.
0: Wow, well, <laughs> That's I mean, awesome. it took you around the world, and and it sold. You sold so many records, and you've touched so many people's uh, so many people with your music, which is mostly in the in the inspirational sort of gospel classical. Uh,
1: era, right? I, I uh, began classical. Um, mm. I was mentored by the great-granddaughter of Antonin Dvorak, and oh, wow. uh, so my, my whole upbringing was um, with her as a mentor, so it was pure classical. And then um, I started doing shows. And very early on, my teachers were asking me to do shows to promote uh, their teaching and around the Chicago area. And most people, they don't want to hear classical. If you're doing a show in front of a thousand people, um, they want to hear the devil went down to Georgia <laughs> and <laughs> and so I was getting all you know Danny boy and almost everything was within the folk right. genre that audiences wanted to hear so I kind of skewed into folk and uh, most of my shows now in fact um all of my shows for the last 10 years have been um in theaters around the world and I do um a, a mixture of folk from around the world so Celtic and bluegrass
0: I mean that's I saw awesome. the
1: classical bent but
0: yeah that's Great. awesome um, hey, I just, I,
1: the, the, Scotty Stoneman was a great, you know, violinist, bluegrass era who, you know, influenced Jerry Garcia and stuff. So there's a lot of, uh, I love folk music. I love classical music. And I'm just impressed by that whole thing. You know, it's awesome that you found your way into your own niche, so to speak yeah i love that that style of music i think bluegrass is really the new jazz of the american mm-hmm. landscape as far as music goes i mean most of the great players um are skewed into folk mark o'connor yeah. even it's perlman um yeah. uh you know Shel crow uh allison krauss all the greats they've all skewed bluegrass even Nora jones her latest record is bluegrass. yes yeah, absolutely
0: yeah. so So. you can tell that david's pretty extraordinary but you can also tell that he's pretty extraordinary not only because he's a you know able to play the violin so well but he's in his travels around the world you grew fascinated with the idea of visiting caves and the oldest um points of of humanity everywhere you were traveling or where human existence was so tell us a little bit about what it was that you were driving to to find out as you were visiting these different locations around the world uh and and what was that interest is it just an anthropological interest or, or what drove you to to this quest that you had
1: Yeah, everywhere I went around the world. um, I've been to over a hundred countries and I would always, after the shows, I would always uh, ask to be taken to the oldest human settlements. And so I've just been absolutely everywhere. And um, what drove me to that was this um, finding of uh, the world story. Uh, You can read about it now in a book that was recently published called The Origin of World Mythology um but essentially around the world you find that all of the uh villages all of the nations all of the empires throughout the entire history of the planet around the entire world polynesia from uh you know japan and china to um alaska to patagonia you know to uh everywhere in between europe africa everywhere has been telling the exact same story
0: what do you mean by the exact same story in- what, what is that what is that story
1: Well, the story has 10 points to it. It's got 10, um, essential, um, major, what they call plot points or myth elements to it. Um, and it's very specific and it's about how humans came about living on this planet and whatever you want to think about the interpretation of that story, the very fact that the story is the same everywhere. Um, it includes dragons, it includes gods and goddesses and monsters and, uh, the creation of human beings and their, uh, the gods cleared out a, a land for the human beings to live on by killing the dragons and it, it, it's a very specific story and right. it's told absolutely everywhere
0: which is and remarkable really when you think about abso- how, yeah, it's, it's how people sp- believe they're developed separately people don't believe that we've developed together and certainly not in the, to that extent where we would be sharing myths like that um why how did that happen
1: well, that, that's where the cave started. I wanted to get to the earliest human populations. And what I started to find was this extraordinary pattern in the cave paintings. Mm. Um, the cave paintings all use the same symbols. And um, those symbols have been largely disregarded by uh, uh, historians and scientists and anthropologists because they didn't know what they meant. But they were basically like these circles and hashtag, hash marks. Um, around the animals, almost all the uh, ancient cave paintings are of animals. In fact, every single major ancient cave painting, from uh, you know Chauvet to Lascaux to Indonesia and Borneo to alaska and patagonia they're all of animals and so these are significant
0: the, let me just slow you down a little bit as so we're not uh severance so following these 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 are significant archaeological finds these are very important uh finds in the in the world and you've been to visit many of them and you've seen that these these paintings are mostly of animals right they're specifically of, of buffalo or or those kinds or whatever they were tracking at the time. And then on top of that, there is what? Hashtags or uh, numbers or circles or something that indicates an important uh, significance, right?
1: Yeah, they were they were counting something. And um, nobody has put those pieces together. But my um, colleague of my dad's who was a biologist for the energy department, wrote a book called Biological Time, where he he essentially proved, and I think, beyond any reasonable doubt that Uh, what they were doing was they were tracking the behavior of the animals based on the sun and the moon. So when you actually look, for for example, at Chauvet, Warner Herzog recently did a a documentary called The Cave of Forgotten Dreams, where he goes into Chauvet Cave, and it's the first time we get to see these earliest paintings. They're 32,000 years old, and uh, all of the paintings aren't just of animals, they're of animals doing specific things. So you have like the the scene of the rhinos. The rhinos are facing off, uh, and they do this during the fall mating season. You look at the two lions, um, two, two cave lions, and they're in the mating ritual. And so the, the animals weren't just uh, random paintings of animals. They were painting of animals doing specific things. And then next to the animals, below the animals, you'd see these hash marks. And they were counting the months of the year um, to, uh, to count when, and then the mm-hmm. circle would be, what was the window of time that that animal was doing that specific thing. Mm. So they weren't just, um uh random markings on a on a on a which they thought that they were some people have speculated that they were just testing the paintbrush i mean all kinds of speculations but what we now know is that they were tracking these animals so it it was was much more sophisticated than we thought
0: and not just tracking these animals individually because all these track marks all these markings or the hash marks whatever all of these are very similar or in fact almost the same in each part of the world so like the myths that you're talking about um there was another thing another skill that was being traded around the world or that the whole world seemed to know about which was the was following these animals and how and how they made it and how they they came to eat and and their their basic habits and that humans were tracking all of these animals uh simultaneously around the world using the same markings on caves that
1: is precisely it you've really hit the nail on the head the the guy that uh, first uh, really kind of cracked this code in Lascaux only uh used lasco cave uh being all over the world and seeing that every cave system on the planet was doing the exact same kind of tracking i mean you're looking at um a what would be a collection of of extraordinary significance i mean the all of the major plants and animals of every region was being tracked biologically based on patterns in their behavior as those patterns were being tracked against the lunar and solar calendar and these uh, paintings date back to the earliest settlements in every region so um, what, basically, what what I determined was that uh, there was a extensive collect- a connection, uh, a network of communication, very similar to our Pony Express in the United States, uh, but that there was a network of communication across the nomadic world that's much more extensive than we had anticipated.
0: How far back are we talking about?
1: Well... This is where um, it it becomes pretty clear what what occurred. Uh, When you look at the uh, origin of the human species, we all began in South Sahara, um, Sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, for the the majority of the time that humans have been on the planet, several hundred thousand years of Homo sapiens existence on planet earth, we lived in a very small part of the earth. Um, And there weren't very many of us. And it was assumed that um, at the cognitive revolution, which was 50,000 years ago, roughly, um, that all of the humans spread out in uh, individual pods, that they all broke away from each other and began taking parts of the planet as individual family units. And what, what, what I found is that this is just not true. Um, the the uh, humans had an enemy. That enemy was the other hominids, the Neanderthal being the largest and strongest among them. And they had attempted to make incursions into Neanderthal territory several times, but had always been beaten back. Archaeologists have discovered the remains of nine Neanderthals at a prehistoric site near Rome, Italy's culture ministry said on Saturday. Eight of the remains are dated to between 50,000 and 68,000 years ago, the ministry said in a statement. But the oldest is from much earlier, between 90,000 and 100,000 years ago. Neanderthals, the closest ancient relatives of humans, died out about 40,000 years ago it's unclear what killed them off. Their theories include an inability to adapt to climate change and increased competition from modern humans. And beaten back. And uh, after they discovered that they could track animal patterns against the sun and the moon, they realized they could track Neanderthal patterns as well against the sun and the moon because the Neanderthals were tracking the animals and were following the animals. And they came together as a single unit. The, our ancestors, Homo sapiens, came together as a single population of Homo sapiens and they taught each other this tracking mechanisms, and they planned the taking of the planet from the Neanderthals as a single unit. And it, it's, it's, that, it's that, that simple shift in our understanding of how Homo sapiens took the planet that really casts this very, very long shadow into the modern world.
0: Tonight's show is brought to you by Helix Sleep, and they have a special offer for narrative viewers. I've heard it from so many people. The one thing that's changed since January is their sleep, not waking up, worrying about what the president might have done or said or tweeted makes the world of a difference. I don't think I had a good solid night's sleep in four years and wasn't only the president, my 10 year old mattress, which started life as a 12 inch foam mattress had shrunk to an eight inch mattress and getting out of bed was often more of a slide than a bounce. It was time for a new mattress. Healy Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? Changing the course of a country can take a village, changing the course of your sleep takes a quiz. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com narrative. That's the way we spell narrative, N-A-R-A-T-I-V. That's helixsleep.com slash narrative for up to $200 off and two free pillows just for you. So we wow. originated in Sub-Saharan Africa, and then we didn't individually go out we were in tribes. We, as a group, determined how we were going to to beat the Neanderthals and then, um, and then take over the world, to put it simply. And then since then, you're also saying, there's been constant communication between, between the humans of the world. That they've been constantly what meeting on a regular basis, and sharing knowledge like how to track animals or, or or what or what are you saying?
1: Yes, what there was was a hierarchy of councils. So it began with the tribal and family councils, but they sent a representative to the clan, and everybody's familiar with the clan. You, if you've ever watched any show at all like game of thrones or you know mm-hmm. vikings or any sort of um, even modern show we're familiar with the concept of the clan the clan governed dozens of family units there were thousands of members of the clan but it didn't stop there the clan sent a delegate up the chain and we know this throughout the um, uh, western hemisphere when we began studying uh, the uh, native americans and the mayans and the aztecs in the western hemisphere a great book called 1491 by Charles Mann came out, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, incredible historian. Um, and he pieces this, the, the, the now known history of the Western Hemisphere, it's, it's staggeringly different from the history that we, that we used to think, even 30 or 40 years ago, when we used to believe that there was only several hundred thousand, or maybe even from 100,000 uh, to several hundred thousand uh, human beings living in the Western Hemisphere prior to the European colonization. We now know that that number that most people are staggered by the new um, number, but that new number has been increased to more than a hundred million. So when you look at the history of civilization, what you find is from Jericho, the very earliest city that we have excavated, um, believed to be established around 9,400 BC, um, that, that city develops for a period of time and then suddenly collapses and then it develops for a period of time and then suddenly collapses. And it looks like these are about 1,000 to 1,200-year 1, spans between the collapse points of Jericho. Then you look at the modern uh, uh, history of civilization, and the exact same trend continues, except on a larger scale. The Akkadian Empire is the first empire that we know of. It collapses in 2385, a, a, a massive collapse. You, you, you move forward to the Egyptian Empire. The Late Bronze Age collapse, again, about 1,000 years later, this massive collapse of civilizations, over 80% of the population declines over uh, uh, about a hundred year period. Uh, Move forward to the Roman empire, the exact same thing occurs, a massive collapse of civilizations. And the same thing occurs with the Mayans and everyone assumed there's two paradigms that have um, been competing. One paradigm is the overwhelming paradigm that historians have accepted, that these are natural events. What I have done is amassed enough evidence to move way beyond the threshold of doubt that these are not natural events at all. There's no evidence that they were natural.
0: Let's let's talk a little bit about the council. You're saying that this council existed, um, all these regional councils of tribes sent their representatives to where? Where did they send them to?
1: Central Council uh, changed over, uh, changed locations over this, we're talking about thousands of years. So mm-hmm. the Central Council changed locations. It was a nomadic council. Um, uh, the Central Council went by many names in the historical record. One of the names that it went by the, in the Egyptian period, they called it the all seeing eye. And it's this symbol um, of the all-seeing eye that we see around the world. I mean, and mm. and we also see it in so many mythologies. It's in, obviously, I mean, immediately you think of J.R. Tolkien, you think of Lord of the Rings, right. you think of that symbol that you see on the dollar over the yeah. Egyptian pyramid. This is the symbol of the Central Council.
0: The uh, 100 million people, humans, who've been lived before Western um, civilization as we know it, So can you benchmark that for us? Like, when was that, that uh, our current history suggests that all the civilization started? Um, And then also, when did these 100 million people uh, live?
1: Okay, yes. Uh, Our civilization as we know it begins at what we call the Agricultural Revolution. It's a bit of a misnomer because the Agricultural Revolution was actually spawned by the invention of animal husbandry. It was the ability to keep and breed animals in captivity that created this this major shift toward a sedentary lifestyle. So the the big gap between the hunting and gathering lifestyle and the sedentary lifestyle, this gap was um, uh, predicated on the discovery of animal husbandry. Um, Because as we know, Native Americans were engaged in agriculture for thousands of years after the Mesopotamian event, and uh, agriculture did not spawn a sh- uh, that 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 shift to a sedentary lifestyle the way right. that it did in Europe, and it was it was animal husbandry is that marker, and we now know exactly when animal husbandry began. Large scale animal husbandry begins. Um, we can even pinpoint it down to the mile marker. It's uh, about twelve miles northwest of the of uh, Nevali, Turkey, uh, 9600 BC. The very earliest animals began massive uh, domestication efforts. So 9, we know that BC. If- yeah, Right. And so before that, there
0: were 100, 100 million other humans in the world doing all sorts of other things?
1: No, 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 we're not talking in the world. The, the okay. 1491 right. is, is just about the Americas. We're talking just about yeah, the yeah. Western that, Hemisphere. Yeah, yeah. So right. 1491 estimates, the anthropologists have estimated that in 1491, mm. um, before the Europeans colonized the Americas, that there was somewhere around 100 million human okay. beings living in the Western Hemisphere. So this, what this does is it just dramatically scales up what our understanding of what hunting and gathering culture could accomplish. I mean, you look at places like Cahokia in the Americas, you're looking at a, a massive 2,200 acre site. There's a pyramid the size of the Pyramid of Giza, um, uh, uh, you know, enormous stone uh, um, defensive palisades. Um, There's even a a wooden Stonehenge in the exact configuration of Stonehenge just made out of wood uh, that they've discovered. So um, what what all of the evidence around the world has determined is that the hunting and gathering lifestyle was significantly more advanced than we had anticipated and that they had a government structure. And this is the critical point. They had a government structure that was capable of coordinating enormous populations over incredibly extended periods of time so you look at a discovery like gobekli tepe which probably both of you are familiar with right gobekli tepe in turkey was discovered in 1994 the reason why it was so significant is because it predates the agricultural revolution it's the only Hmm. massive monument of its time that predates agriculture so it had to have been created by hunters and gatherers um, it, its construction period was over 11,000 years ago. And uh, we, we see nothing else like that until the pyramids, nothing else that sophisticated. So we know that, that Gobekli Tepe was um, uh, uh, not just a single temple. You're looking at about 50 or 60 different temples and they've done ground penetrating radar. And what they, what they believe is that this temple complex is being constructed for around 1,000 to 2,000 years. They would create a, a circular temple um, massive stone circular temple. And then they would bury it. And then they would start construction on, the, on a temple right next door of the exact same configuration or very similar configuration. And then they would bury it. And this process went on gathering so, yeah. culture was able to coordinate um, massive populations for centuries and centuries of time. It's, so the, you, it's these council structures that- so would, these that,
0: councils of hunters and gatherers would then what domesticates humans?
1: What these councils of hunters and gatherers did is that they, um, what you're looking at then is you have to completely reimagine the origin of civilization in light of the fact that on the, in the Eastern Hemisphere, um, Jericho would have been the tiny, for thousands of years, Jericho is less than a thousand people. Jericho is right in literally within walking distance of Gobekli Tepe. It's about a few hundred miles, but I mean, you could walk there. I mean, so Jericho was right in the backyard of Gobekli Tepe, meaning jericho was being constructed um, and and the the inhabitants of jericho were living at a time when hunters and gatherers were able to amass enormous populations towards mm. incredibly sophisticated building projects meaning whoever did gobekli tepe whatever government structure was coordinating the creation of gobekli tepe would have been able to wipe jericho off the map
0: right.
1: whenever it chose to
0: so this and, much older, more sophisticated, more tech-savvy, more advanced group of humans uh, who had then amassed a different group of humans, basically, to do all this work for them.
1: The, yes, the hunters and gatherers would have been in a position, with the government structure that they had, this hierarchy of councils culminating in a central council, the central council could coordinate the maneuvers of all of the various tribal councils simultaneously. So when you look at like the collapse of the Akkadian Empire, the historical record is very clear massive tribes of hunters and gatherers were attacking the region they were choking off the the trade routes they were poisoning the water supplies they had a very specific plan of attack they would they would do guerrilla warfare where they would come in and do hit and run tactics they did this for decades and decades until the akkadian empire finally collapses
0: so you've got these supreme councils you've got these councils and each of them have these tribal representatives that go up to these to these central councils what you're talking about is really a royal structure you're talking about a structure of of, of power that's handed down over hereditary lines for, for centuries, really. And it looks and feels a lot like royal families would today. I mean, obviously, they don't look the same, but they, they uh, you know, we're talking about that same kind of, of, of government in terms of, of how they operated.
1: It is not just a same kind, it is the direct descendant of. The entire global network of royal families directly descend from these nomadic tribal nations. That's why the House of Windsor used to be called in 1914. It was called the House of Saxe, Coburg and Goth. They okay. directly descended from the Saxes and the Goths. The current um, uh, kings and queens in, in the Middle East, the Saudi Arabian government, the the, uh, uh, the um, you know King um, bin Salman. They, they Yeah, they directly, um, uh, it, it, they're open about it. They, they trace their heritage back to the nomadic tribal governments that, that governed the oases in the desert thousands of years ago. Every, all of the royal families of the world, and there are millions of them. What the American population is, un, um, is unfamiliar with is the true breadth and extent of the royal world. Um, 245 years ago, when the United States was, you know, fighting a revolutionary war, the entire planet was governed by, by one royal house or another the entire planet. Right. And then the United States carved out a tiny little fraction of the earth, these 13 colonies, that we shrugged off royal rule. But the entire planet was governed by, by royalty and this very sophisticated, very old network of hierarchical councils, which still exists today. The exact and, and not only structure. They-
0: not only did they each have their own royalty, but that they also met on a regular basis to coordinate policy, is what you're saying. So that there is one world government, essentially, you're suggesting. I mean, there's no, I don't know if there's any evidence of this, but there's, there's one world government that all these royal uh, families uh, ultimately met together every year, or whenever they went, I guess, and discussed how the, how the world would proceed. They would discuss policy for the, for the next few years.
1: Yes, they've had a very. This has been going on for a, for um, thousands of years. the 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 current royal structure is a direct descendant of the nomadic structure. It's direct descendants of the same people, the same houses. Um, they have been um, um, co- dealing with this hierarchical council structure for so long that. It's absolutely entrenched in how the royal uh, families govern themselves. And there's no disputing that. What's interesting is that you can go through the entire historical record, but you can also just walk straight in the front door. There's absolutely no one who disputes the fact that there are dozens and dozens of royal councils, the Order of the Bath, the Order of the Golden Chrysanthemum, the Order of the Garter, the Order of the British Empire. The Queen of England sits at the head. You can just Google this. Um, Mm -hmm. You can just look, I mean, it's right on her page. They're They're not hiding it. They sit at the head of dozens of these, over 30 of these royal councils. You could take just one of them, and I would like to go over this just very quickly while we have time. You could take just one of them, the Order of the Bath. The Order of the Bath has 2,400 members. Each member is a patriarch or matriarch of their own family structure. 2,400, it's it's, it's in three separate tiers. Um, The Queen of England sits at the sovereign of this structure. You ask like, okay, Prince Charles, he's as they talk about in the news, he's gaining more of the power structure of the Royal world. What does this mean? Well, what this means is he's actually now ascended to the great master. He is now the great master of the order of the bath. So their decisions are binding on all members of the bath. If you can imagine 2,400 of the most powerful people throughout Europe, when a decision is made at the order of the bath, it is binding on all members beyond any other orders or any other groups or councils that they may be involved in. It's Mm -hmm. over God, it's over country, the bath comes first. Meaning in that one order, you would be able to totally control the destinies of the future of Europe. They control Mm -hmm. all monetary policy, they control all media, they're at the head of every major uh, uh, military organization. They're, they're the head of the defense department. They're the head of the, uh, the, uh, the infrastructure, the, the secretaries of state. Almost every prime minister has been royal dating back to the to the inception of the prime ministership. There, there, there is not one area of Europe that this royal network wouldn't be able to totally control. We would have to be assuming that the order of the bath and all those other councils are still meeting the same way they always did but they're choosing not to control the destiny of Europe because of their love of democracy and the democratic process. Not I likely.
0: Mean, I, I mean, not not <laughs> likely. Here, by the way, is the is the peerage uh, which we've we you, you and I've spoken about before. This is what tell us what peerage is. Tell us exactly what we're looking at as we scroll through the, all these different um, houses, I guess, of of power.
1: Of course, yeah. So this is one, just one of the um, uh, sort of eye-opening websites that I do uh show people just to let them breach the subject of what we're talking about here and the extent of it when people think of the royal families they sometimes think of like 12 or 13 families they'll sometimes think of the rockefellers and rothschilds that's not even the tip of the iceberg you go to a place like thepeerage.com. peer means um a member of the royal network so that's what it means to be a peer you are a member of the royal family network so um you have official title So when you go to the peerage.com and you just click on um, the index, okay? Mm -hmm. And you start to scroll through the families, you get carpal tunnel before you get down to the H's. I mean, it is is an extraordinary list, Um, hundreds and hundreds of families. And you're looking at um, a, a collection of people who, if they were independent of one another, you would still have to worry about their inter-family relationships, but they're not independent of one another. They're all, they're all still engaged in um, the exact same mechanisms of control that they've had for centuries and centuries. Back when we knew that the network of royal families controlled the destiny of Europe, all you have to do is go back 150 years. Um, these, these families groups go all the way back into the Middle Ages they're, the order of the bath, the order of the chrysanthemum, the, the order of the garter, all of these major orders go back centuries and centuries. They're, they're operating in the exact same way they always have. And, um, uh, and, and absolutely nobody has any eyes on it. What's so fascinating is, I mean, I just got done talking to one of the heads of the Department of Defense. I've, at, by, by the time I pieced together the evidence, I'm just giving you guys the major broad strokes of the outline here. The, the evidence that I have is a mountain. It is an absolute mountain of evidence yeah. I'm sitting on. I just met recently with a, with a senior member of the Department of Defense, and I just showed her. I, I only was able to meet for about a couple hours, but I just showed her the broad strokes of the evidence, and she said it's the most frightening thing she'd ever seen. We have absolutely no eyes on them at all
0: well of course they wouldn't let us in and we have and they have all the eyes on us because really i mean we think of the of modern history or you know, the period of time that America's existed, it's such a fraction of time compared to the, the history that these people have ruled the planet. I mean, the amount of knowledge and resources and, and just know-how they've amassed over the thousands and thousands and thousands of years they have ruled out of the Earth. I mean, it, it's, there's nothing that America or any country could do uh, to compare their knowledge to that. It's, it's insurmountable, really, in some ways.
1: Well, what, what they're keeping is an ability to coordinate um, internationally over very, very long periods of time. And uh, the average American should ask themselves, you can go throughout the Western hemisphere too, right? You could go to Chile, you could look up the president of Chile. I was just down there recently. And um, I was was talking with uh, very well-educated Chilean students about the state of their country. And I just said, I mean, we were talking about the conquistadors. Now the conquistadors married into this royal family lineage of the Incas and the Mayans and how their current government is totally dominated by the descendants of those people. And you can just look up the Chilean president and you'll see that he has a three uh, letter acronyms next to his name. Um, Almost every president and prime minister in the entire Western hemisphere, except for the United States. What the United States doesn't realize is it's the odd man out when-
0: Narrative is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative.